This is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Claire Barnes, one of the hosts of the podcast, covering our books on the environment, politics, religion, history, law, and biography. I'm excited to welcome our guest today, Devra Baum, author of On Marriage. Devra Baum is a writer, a film director, and an associate professor in English literature at the University of Southampton. She is the author of Feeling Jewish, a book for just about anyone, and The Jewish Joke, an essay with examples, less essay, more examples. She's joining us from the United Kingdom. Welcome, Devra, to the podcast. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk further about this book, which has been described as a fascinating exploration by The Guardian and you as an erudite and entertaining guide through the landscape of marriage, bringing a lively intellectual rigor to changing attitudes on matters of religion, feminism, parenting, and sexuality. Can you tell us how you came to write about marriage? Yeah, it's actually, um, I think the first line in my book is something like, writing a book about marriage wasn't my idea someone else someone eligible proposed it to me and I said yes so in other words in the you know this book on marriage came to me as a proposal about writing a book on marriage uh by uh originally uh in in the UK it's published by Penguin and uh and the marriage proposal was um uh in the best tradition of proposals um, you know, something that gave me a kind of an imaginative jolt, like I could suddenly imagine um, a sort of a future and a possibility that uh, without being proposed to, I might I might uh, not have come up with myself. I, you know, I, as I discuss in the book a bit, I'm sort of, um, I, I was raised in a very traditional kind of world and family, and I'm essentially somebody who seems to spend my entire time just waiting for things to be proposed to me <laughs> like I don't I don't seem to very often take the initiative to come up with ideas for myself so um so uh but the moment I have a proposal ideas and uh, images and ways of thinking begin to just coalesce and uh and I'm inspired and uh and so I thought to write this book on marriage only when it was proposed, but once it was proposed, I understood the logic of the proposal. I understood that the person who proposed it to me had seen something in me that uh, I hadn't particularly noticed. And what um, he had seen is that I'm clearly obsessed with marriage, <laughs> but I'd made films about my marriage. I, by then I'd only made one film. I've since made another film about my marriage. And I had recently just at that time been invited to be the, uh, uh, the officiant at an actual wedding this is in uh, the state of Massachusetts where you can get licensed as a one-day solemnizer and I was frequently invited to sort of do gigs at other people's weddings I was always making speeches being the best woman or whatever and 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 so it turned out and my mother uh, was a marriage guidance counselor which which was the old-fashioned way uh, of my mother's from a you know a, a very different generation uh to um what today are called couples therapists but that's that was uh what she was called when I was growing up so it turned out marriage was sort of um 
an ongoing interest and obsession that I just didn't notice I'd had until this proposal came along. That's fascinating. And and I'm wondering if we can turn now to the question of how your own marriage influenced the writing of this book. Your husband, Josh, and his family appear throughout the text. And as you mentioned, you often collaborate with each other professionally on films and projects. What reflections emerged from your own marriage that were integrated into the book? Well, it's very interesting because when you start thinking about marriage, uh, I would wager this is true of uh, most uh, married people, that when you start thinking about marriage, one of the things that strikes you is, why have I never really thought about marriage before? I seem to have done it. <laughs> so <laughs> why have I never really given it any thought? And, I, you know, I, I discussed this a little bit in the book, too, that my the only real, real thought I'd given to marriage, I was very aware of the polemics, you know, the for and against marriage, uh, uh, but but actually a more thoughtful like what what is marriage really? What's the experience of marriage? Why do people do it? Um, uh, what motivates people into it, even if they do have objections to it sometimes? I'd never really been thoughtful about uh, marriage in that way. I just wondered who I was going to do it with. My only real thought was the question of who I would marry, because it was so it seemed so predetermined in the kind of background uh, I had. Uh, that I would marry and so my my only real question was who not 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 anything really any more considerate than that and uh and then after I married I'd done it <laughs> and so I I wasn't really thinking about it then either and then it was it was really um when I started thinking about this book and writing about the book that I thought what if this what if this project of thinking about marriage endangers my marriage because the moment you start thinking about marriage, uh, you realize, well, this is an institution that is responsible for some of the most terrible abuses uh, in in history, particularly along the lines of it being a patriarchal institution that has um, created conditions in which misogyny and, of course, homophobia and all kinds of other forms of privilege and social injustice have been allowed to thrive and be perpetuated. Uh, and using the language of morality and 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 so on. So so the moment you start thinking about it quickly and seriously, you might worry um, about what those lessons you're learning are going to do within your own uh, private relationship. But over the course of uh, uh, worrying about it, I also noticed that thinking about things um, enriches them and thinking about things opens them up and makes more things possible within them. So whilst I feared at first that I might turn on my husband in fury, which I did do a few times when I started thinking about marriage for this book, uh, over the course of thinking about it, um, I I discovered that there was a kind of uh, richness to the question that I could also bring back into the question of our own marriage in a way that felt generative and productive and expansive. And somehow the question of marriage has has never ceased to be of interest to our marriage in the sense that we seem to be documenting it in cinema and in various other ways. So, um, so the example of my own marriage does show up again and again and again in the book, but because in a way, it's a very good example of the fact that one of the main contentions of the book is that marriage is 
is characterized by by being everywhere but strangely unknowable it's like everybody knows marriage because everybody has grown up in a wedlocked world if, if one, if, no matter whether or not they grew up in homes with people who are married the just the the, the marriage plot is so all-encompassing uh, and yet nobody seems to really know what goes on inside any marriage and I think the example of my own marriage is brought out so often in the book, partly because I don't know what's going on inside my own marriage either. I mean, even one's own marriage is a kind of secret. And so, um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think writing the book and thinking about my own marriage over the course of writing the book might have changed my marriage, and I would say for the better. Mm. I, I want to turn to actually the polemics now. Uh, in one of the opening chapters of the book, you discuss the many different forms marriage has taken in the West across the centuries in literature, philosophy, and society. Tell us more about the philosopher's distaste for marriage and how these views differ from modern understandings of marriage in the Western world. Another sort of provocation for me in the book when I started thinking about the book I wanted to write was one of the questions I have was why the marriage plot was so dominant in literature. I mean, really, particularly in the history of the novel, although I, you can go back you know, much, much further, really. Um, but I'm thinking mostly about the Western canon here, which is, again, the sort of literature that I was raised on and that, that uh, um, but we can go to fairy tales and anywhere, but the, but the, but it's so dominant in literature that it's almost impossible to tell any story without secreting a little sort of marriage plot inside it very often. And uh, and so it's been very, very determining of our imaginative lives. And I would say, you know, outside of literature, too, even today, where marriage is a lot less popular and people are a lot more critical of it, somehow they still have to define themselves in relationship to it. Their relationship status is somehow, are they single? Are they married? Are they unmarried? So are they divorced? Are they somehow marriage is still somehow very determining of all kinds of meanings, of all kinds of relationships. And so I was surprised to notice that given that, uh, it's almost absent in in uh, particularly the canon of Western philosophy that I'm I'm familiar with. You find it a little bit, but it's barely touched on. And uh, those who do touch on it, those writings that they write about marriage aren't particularly privileged within their works. They're, they're kind of secondary. They're not really noticed. And I noticed that those writers and philosophers and thinkers who do engage with marriage more seriously were tend to be the ones who had never themselves married, as if there was, in some sense, a kind of incompatibility between thinking and marrying, as if you could only marry uh, on the basis that you'd never given the question any real thought. <laughs> um, and when you think about marriage, it's so radical. I mean, we think of it as a very traditional and conservative institution, which of course it is, but it's also the most absurd and radical institution. You know, people say to each other, would you like to marry me? Sure, till when? Oh, until death. How do, you, how do you fancy doing this with me until death? I mean, it's so extraordinary as as a proposition, and yet so many people do it, and some of them do it successfully until death, which is even more extraordinary. So, uh, so that sort of the the sort of madness of of, of the proposal uh, means that philosophers, I think, can't get their head around it. Although I would also say. Uh, the, the other reason that a lot of philosophers uh, historically have ignored marriage is because a lot of those philosophers were men and they were benefiting from the institution and didn't particularly think it was a good idea 
uh, to uh, question it in the way that latterly the feminists came along and, and certainly did begin to treat marriage uh, in a much more critical and engaged way. And in the feminist critique of marriage, there is, you know, this dialectic between privacy and, and human nature. And I'm wondering if you can touch on that a little bit more. In the second chapter of the book, you talk about the veil, both metaphorically and literally. Why is the veil important to understanding how humans have conceptualized the usefulness of marriage? So fascinating, because actually uh, the word nuptial comes from the Latin term, I think, nubere. I don't, I, I don't know how you pronounce it, but, but to, to veil. And, and, and so actually, in a way, marriage um, has always been associated uh, with the idea of creating a private life, a sort of a space within the world that requires the sanction of the world. Because one of the main things about marriage uh, institutionally is that the world has to sort of come along and sanction uh, uh, this relationship between two people. You can go off and be married. And in a way, there's a sort of permission there for the couple to have a private life that the world does not bestow on anybody else, including single people. Uh, and, and, and so that sort of strangeness about uh, it taking the world, the public world, to sanction this sort of hiddenness of marriage interests me. And the veil um, is has all kinds of interpretations and, and meanings cross-culturally. Uh, and some of them would say is, you know, some of them would suggest that the veil is there to, I mean, stop the world seeing what, what, you know, what terrible abuses might go on uh, behind that, behind that, behind that closed door. I mean, the, 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 to some extent, that limit um, could be a place where behind those cl closed doors of the marital home, we know that very often, very often some terribly abusive relationships take place but again under the cover of a kind of respectability and there are other interpretations uh that see the veil as a way of masking um the sort of pleasure and happiness of people who are secretly behind those closed doors having a much better time than the, they know the world is doing in public and i think that can be something that people want to veil too that but i think i genuinely think that people uh want to unveil want to veil their happiness and want to veil want to veil their unhappiness and want to veil their happiness i i think both those things uh get veiled for different reasons at different times historically um and at the same time but the other sort of possibility of 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 thinking about marriage uh as a veil is that it somehow indicates uh the kind of strangeness of what's going on between two people about this sort of commitment to somebody who will to some extent always be veiled who will always never really be known to you because when you're committing to marriage you're not committing really to somebody who will always stay the same you're committing to them throughout the times in which they will change and become different and it's an extraordinary commitment in that sense because you're committing to a future and the future is a space of the unknown and things you can't anticipate and the one thing you do know is that you know the person you're with will change and you two will change so the veil is almost a kind of 
um, symbol, I think, of the unknowability that goes on in this space. And I'm interested in in the way that the privacy of marriage is initiated through permission, as you note, and that this permission comes through language. You write extensively about language in marriage, conversation, gossip, vows, and everything having to do with talking within or not talking about such a union. How do you think that the invention of social media and digital communication complicates language in marriage? I do think it has this, as I mentioned that, that it has this sort of propensity to kind of um, make even more emphatic these aspects of identity, of relationship status as so though you're, you're you're sort of required constantly no matter who you are to update the world I mean I say this as somebody with absolutely no experience of social media myself I've never been on it but I you know I've heard about it and uh, and I know that one of the things it seems to do is to sort of demand a kind of constant curation of your identity in the world and if you've got any updates to make you must you must go online and immediately make them so to that extent I think it's the very opposite of what in its best iteration marriage offers behind its veil, which is the possibility to be uh, indecisive, in, non-determinate, changing, to be constantly um, exchanging roles, being one person one day, somebody else the next. And uh, I mean, I think some of, some of the kind of most radical ideas we have about fluidity and uh and gender and all these things um in the sort of public space and 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 which are getting debated you know constantly all the time now in the, in that public space and online are sort of just the norm actually within mar in it within a lot of marriages where you sort of you you, you very often forget you know you you call everybody in your house but you you have to try out each of all the names all the time you never remember who anybody is or what they're called <laughs> because you're all each other so much of the time and 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 uh and again that can that can have um positive and negative moments within it because um there's a kind of um there can be a kind of refusal to recognize differences within that and to just sort of um, overtake each other's privacy when you're all living together but I think that you know in a, in the happier homes um, that's the pleasure of it that these demands of, of of knowing who you are and knowing what your identity is and curating it for a world that demands to know um, are, 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 are somehow not there behind the veil. And And you do challenge that the idea of marriage can't be entertaining for adults. You write that long-term couple experience doesn't have to make you more cynical, that marriage can return you to your youthful exuberance. Can you talk a little bit more about this idea? In what ways does marriage make people more youthful? Well, I mean, one of the main things, if you do read memoirs, testimonies uh, of people ab about their marriage, and particularly, um, uh, the happier ones, I would say. Mm. But, you know, most people know this from if they've been in any kind of particularly coupledom. Uh, uh, I, I know less about the polyamorous arrangements of people. I, I've not been in one myself, but particularly uh, coupledom. Uh, I mean, and again, you can, there is good and bad things you can say about this. But, but for example, Christopher Bolas, actually in a sort of critical psychoanalytic essay, 
about marriage, says that it's a form of regression. People are sort of longing to sort of return to the sort of pre-Oedipal lives, the warmth of the parental bodies, and, and, and they just sort of want to revert, they want to regress into a kind of infancy. And he says they want this because uh, the, what the couple saves them from are two complexities that they can't bear. And one is the complexity of social life of lots of people, and the other is the complexity of individual life, of, 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 of the complexity of oneself, that somehow the couple saves you from those things uh, by allowing you to revert to a kind of infantile state. But there are other people who would say and do say that that sort of regression, as he calls it, is also extraordinarily fruitful and generative because that's the place of play, of creativity, and yes, it's true. We know the language of love is so often the language of babying. People, people baby one another and 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 call each other baby very often and act like their childhood selves uh, very often. Yeah. So I think there is. I think in a way there is. Um, there is very often in long term couple experience a kind of um, a dropping of adult pretensions sometimes and and uh more and more you can get into this sort of idea of um of being playful and experimental but one of the other reasons for that is and it's i think for me this is one of the beautiful the most beautiful things about um growing old with somebody is uh is that the person you see every single day doesn't really get old for you. Uh, uh, they don't look old to you. They, 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 somehow you don't, you don't see them getting old. Obviously, you're getting old together, but that's not the experience of being with somebody every day. The people who seem to get old are the people you don't see in ten years, and then you see them again, and you think they got old. Um, and and old in 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 the sense of something something in your relationship with them seems to have sort of. Um, not matured alongside them and therefore it feels like it's old but that isn't the experience of being together with somebody all the time I think in a way you you can you can retain something um youthful and childlike and experimental in that daily conversation hmm. it's really fascinating how you describe kind of the timelessness of of this space and of creativity and joy and I'm wondering if we can turn to the playfulness that's involved in joined activities um, with couples. In the book, you observe that the rise of streaming has changed how couples watch TV um, because each person can choose what they want to watch and do it on their own. But you do argue that co-watching is still important for couples. Can you talk about these kind of joyful benefits of, of co-watching? Well, joyful and traumatic, I think, in mm -hmm. that chapter. I mean, there's a, a chap my chapter called Co Watching is really about I mean, I in a way it's a sort of code for middle age, mm. <laughs> which is basically I you know, we're tired and we've got jobs and we've got children and mostly just mostly our married life is kinda of, is just like one, you know, mostly our interactions are just one big management meeting <laughs> we do comms with each other. Did you organize this? We need to book that, so on and so forth with our jobs and our children and 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 so on uh and so there is a risk of course there is a risk particularly when in that period of of, of life and marriage that intimacy goes away and all kinds of 
hell can break loose when you let that happen and it can happen very easily and by accident but then it it, it you know it, it is something to watch out for and um and I suppose one of the things a lot of couples I know, including my own couple, do in lieu of other forms of intimacy very often when we're so tired is we just we watch box sets together. And and uh, that's my favorite bit of every day. I'm I'm a TV addict and I just can't wait to get of the bit of the day when we watch box <laughs> box sets together. But my husband um, uh, is looking for real intimacy, not just that, you know, just where we sit on the sofa slumped and we watch and we watch the next episode of whatever he wants us to have real intimacy and so he makes us watch art cinema together occasionally and so when <laughs> we watch art cinema together um then we very often wind up sleeping in different beds because because it's not just watching the predictable script of something that's generic in a way that we're going to basically feel the same feelings and have the same thoughts as each other and also as everybody else in our social media and our bubble who are watching the same thing. Art cinema is a different kind of provocation and and very often what happens when you're watching art cinema together is you feel the difference between you. You feel the kind of split coming between you that what does the, you don't know what the other thinks about this uh, and how you're feeling about this might be different. And you still, each, you still looks at each other so you start that watching art cinema can make you sort of turn back and look at each other differently and uh and my husband and I often have really big screaming matches after we've seen a movie but particularly a movie featuring couples that are having big screaming matches because we <laughs> instinctively side with one or other in that couple and then um and then we you know we go off and sleep in separate beds but something in that feels dynamic and like like we're not just going to let this relationship stagnate and lie and and drift into Netflix. We are going to keep it going. And sometimes in order to keep it going, we need to uh, bring in a form of art or entertainment to stimulate something in us. And it is amazing how 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 well that works. Mm. I'm glad that you highlighted the trauma of co-watching as well and the otherness that's involved in in watching art cinema, but the way in which that otherness is is an invitation to keep you know excitement in in the marriage and I think as we were having this discussion of co-watching I was thinking deeply about your analysis of Fleabag in the book and its challenges to something like Simone de Beauvoir's feminist critique of marriage and personally I'm a really big fan of Fleabag and I'm wondering for other Fleabag fanatics can you tell us more about your you know, discussion of feminism, sexuality, and and marriage and Fleabag story. One of the things that I I do in that chapter, which is uh, which begins actually with a, a reading of Fiddler on the Roof, because I I Fiddler on the Roof as a sort of portrait of um of a patriarch, an old world patriarch, who whose gift it is to allow his daughter to marry or not who who is meant to arrange the, their marriages for them and arranging you know traditionally arranging those marriages on very different grounds to romance and love to love matches for different reasons and um and the challenge to uh uh Tevye and Fiddler on the, the roof is that uh all his daughters want to marry for love and uh and this is this creates um you know a crisis 
in in him and it, and so in that film we and because he faces camera a lot and in that film he's constantly sort of looking to the camera and sharing with us if you like the sort of the plight of the patriarch who's sort of in a state of crisis and under strain because the values in the world is changing and I was interested in comparing that to another character who who we see in the screen looking at camera looking to us who is um you know from much later in history but is a sort of liberated ostensibly liberated young woman she absolutely doesn't let any man dictate who she's going uh who she's going to love or indeed get into bed with but we see that uh this freedom or this liberty is compromised in many many ways and one of the ways in which we can see that immediately is that she allows herself to be called fleabag so there's some kind of um self-denigration self-hatred that seems to be in the mix here in a certain way there's something abject about her in her state of freedom and although she sleeps with whoever she likes there seems to be something quite compulsive and something quite addictive about her sex life that again seems to hinge close to a feeling that she's she's not really liberating herself or pleasuring herself she seems to be punishing herself in a in some kind of way and what she seems shy of isn't sex it seems to be love it seems to be romance but in romantic comedy uh in order to, to and i love romantic comedy in romantic comedy in order to have a really compelling love object there has to be a very strong obstacle between you and them and so we get that in the second series where she falls in love with a catholic priest which is perfect because you you are really not allowed to get in bed or fall in love with or get married to a catholic priest uh but again with that catholic priest she's fallen in love with i mean literally a father figure he is someone she's meant to call father and uh, and he's also representative of religion and the old world. So this thing that seemed to have gone from the picture in the liberated new woman's uh, reality has come back into the picture as a love object. So I was really interested in the way that series sort of challenges modern feminists to say, what have you really done with this patriarch? You say, you know, you say uh, you're against him. You say you've gotten over him. But isn't he still sort of lingering there as a kind of love object for you, a forbidden love object, uh, a love object forbidden by um, forbidden by the incest taboo of the family, the father, but also in, and forbidden certainly by religion, but also forbidden by feminism uh, you, to love to love this sort of patriarchal figure. Uh, and so she has to sort of work her way through the complexity of that love and see what it's really doing. And she gets to a really interesting place, I think, by the end of Fleabag and what it does with the marriage plot uh, in relationship to feminism and so on. So I think it's a really thoughtful and, and actually necessary intervention into a lot of rather kind of knee-jerk thinking around this stuff. Hmm. And as you mentioned, you know, which I thought, you know, was really profound in in your discussion of Fleabag that freedom and the liberty of modern women is in Fleabag's story really mixed with disgrace and a retreat back to perhaps the comfortable dynamics of patriarchy. Yeah, she has, She you literally have her on her knees and on the floor in a confession box confessing to this priest that she hates her freedom. And mm -hmm. she says, I just want, you know, I just want to be, 
I'm really not enjoying this freedom of mine. I, I want to be told what to do. And she's sort of harking back. Well, she's imagining um, that it might be nice to have that sort of that sort of old world patriarchal world where you get told what to do the whole time. And that's not where the whole series winds up, just reaffirming, yes, women should be told what to do. But it's, you know, psychoanalytically, this makes sense to me that you have to acknowledge that desire within yourself. Uh, rather than just uh, pretend it's it, it sort of died with history. Mm. Yeah, and and I think I want to kind of keep us in this modern predicament of marriage and love. And you know, in the book, you discuss the idea of the couple norm and the marginalization of single people in society, which has happened, you know, throughout the decades and times. And you note, especially during the COVID lockdown, that many single people experienced profound loneliness. And we've talked a lot about marriage, but where are we now in our modern love predicament? I think I, my sense, I, I could be wrong. Um, I My sense is that Oh, I don't, I don't, I'm, you know, I, I'm sure I'm some sort of reactionary, but I, 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 my sense is that the internet hasn't been great for love. Mm. <laughs> um, and um, I know it's allowed a lot of people to find love uh, who perhaps wouldn't have before and to, um, and to meet across various barriers that, that they wouldn't have before. But because of this problem of having to market yourself in a certain way, um online and because of the sort of the way in which uh there's a Eva Alouz there's a sociologist who's written a book about online dating and and the, the sort of feeling of it being a marketplace and people moving from one person to another person to another person uh feeling that they have a sort of permission to indulge and and not pause uh and then selling selling their wares online trying to take pictures of themselves I find it um I find it I find it quite miserable mm. uh, to think about and but of course it wasn't something that existed when when I was I was younger in the same way so I don't um I didn't go through that myself and I feel fortunate for that reason but but I also sometimes wonder if I'm missing out on a whole lot of great of great stuff I do <laughs> think it's really important uh all the people doing work challenging uh the couple norm um, and I've written about this before but I think the couple norm is uh, extraordinarily damaging for people who aren't in couples uh, because there's so much presumption uh, around around that that people have to begin to explain themselves if they're not in a couple but also there's a lot of privileges uh, 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 bestowed on couples in all kinds of ways as we know including financially um, and the fact is it isn't as normal as it sounds. People are living in all kinds of other arrangements, you know, and, and less and less people are choosing to marry apart from it, from anything else. So the fact that it's retained the status as, as a norm is um, uh, coercive, uh, but also, you know, not even uh, necessarily accurate <laughs> uh, as much as we might think it is. But the other thing I would say is that what's really damaging to marriages and a lot of marriages are extraordinarily miserable and unhappy is the fact that it's a norm and and I just think norms um uh, particularly when we're talking about relationships are, are, ne are not helpful for anybody because if you get into a marriage you're gonna have to figure out this thing for yourself you are two unique people 
and uh, and you have to decide for yourself what goes. But if you're under the pressure, the idea of what's what, what's normative and what's normal, uh, normally people living under that pressure um, have a tendency to act out and become quite abusive as they take out on each other uh, the ideals they feel that they're failing to live up to. And we see that in parenting and we see that in, uh, in spousing in the same way. So my book, um, I think, is very interested in the possibility and the pleasures of marriage, but I think it's extremely critical of what's normal institution. Mm. Yeah, I, I, w- I would agree. And in in this marketplace of love and dating, I love how you phrase that, we often see the end of relationships. And so I think this brings us to the conversation of divorce. And, you know, you note that going through a divorce can actually show married couples how married they are. In in a moment where divorce rates are common and rising, what does divorce reveal about the entanglement or interconnections of, of marriage? Divorce is um, so fascinating because, uh, I mean, I, I, I look at, for example, Susan Taub's uh, Romana Clef divorcing, and, and in for her, divorce is a there is a marriage plot in literature, but she doesn't really think there's a divorce plot. We know that there's, of course, there's a the literature, the novel of adultery is, you know, some of the most famous novels of all time, Madame Bovary or, or Anna Karenin or whatever. Adultery is, a, again, a very familiar plot. But divorce, in its fullest sense, is, um, is, is it's sort of very rarely seriously entertained in our imaginative life. And that might be because um, very often, you know, at the end of a divorce, there's just often very often people going off in search of another marriage. <laughs> and so it's, it, it becomes just a sort of method for repetition. But for Susan Taubes, it's a kind of metaphysical um, idea. Can one uh, ever really be outside wedlock? Can one ever really be unmarried? Because the world we're in, is so wedlocked in 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 all of its interlink interlinking institutions, uh, and in so many uh, different ways. But I suppose I wind up in this book. I think becoming making it surprised me. It surprised me. I think I make a quite radical statement or provocation in relationship to divorce, uh, and I'm partly reading this through other thinkers, including the great. American philosopher Stanley Cavell but I wind up I think more or less saying that you should divorce if you can um I I think um I think because I think that what should what what should really keep people married is the feeling that they can't live without each other if they can then I don't really know what the point is (laughs) so but I think when you come down to it I think the feeling like look I can't live without you and not for practical reasons uh you know for for emotional reasons for deep for deep for deep relationship reasons I can't live without you and that's where you know for all our pain for all our suffering for all the misery we cause each other there's something here there's a kind of love here there's there's something here that 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 makes me feel I can't live without you I I just I wouldn't want to live without you but if you feel like I could take you or leave you then I'm not sure that the marriage is 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 necessarily the best container for that relationship. I'm not completely against it if it works, uh, but I think we should um, 
look at divorce in the way that Milton saw it actually as as um you know a really fundamental um uh story about human freedom and and uh and and a really important part of our imaginative life and at the end of the book I'm not sure if you really come to an emphatic embrace of marriage, as you mentioned before, you're highly critical of the normativity of marriage, but there is a fondness there for what marriage reveals to us about ourselves and others. And at the end of writing the book, where did you arrive? What what does the book leave us with in, in this discussion of marriage? When I arrived, um feeling marriage is much more interesting than people give it credit for. <laughs> um, I think people think they know exactly what it is and that they know what they think about it. And what I've been saying, what I say in the book and what I've been saying in, 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 in this discussion is I think people don't know what it is and they've never really thought about it. And um, And I think thinking about it is good for marriage. And I think thinking about it is good for people who aren't married too and uh, have no wish to marry. Um, I think um, my sense is that in one way or another, although its fortunes are fading and it comes in and out of fashion, I think in one way or another, we're always going to have it. Um, and uh, I suppose I I want to... Um, I want to say that you know that there, there is a marriage that I think is 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 quite bad for the people in it and quite bad for the world we're in, uh, which is a marriage that is coercive, that is looking to shore up certain sets of interests and control, and uh, that is used by very often right wing governments um, to um, to hold people in certain social roles, and uh, and then there's another marriage. Uh, that uh, I think can offer us a great deal of hope, particularly in a world like ours, which is, you know, on the brink of extinction, where where people really don't believe in the long term and they really don't trust in long term relationships in particular or in promises that get made to them. And I think that marriage that basically looks at a terrifying and uncertain future and says for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, let's do this, um, is very nourishing. And I think it can be nourishing, not just for the people who make that commitment to each other, but for the community that a marriage always brings in. Thank you for that. And, you know, as we come to the end of our conversation, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you'd like to share with our listeners about your book on marriage? Yeah, I think the one thing I, I uh, one thing that I say quite a lot in the book, um, in one way or another, is that um, because this is not in any straightforward sense a self help book, but since publishing it in the UK, people have been treating me treating it and me as if it was a self help book. <laughs> like, what is the secret of a good working marriage? And and um, I don't know. One of them is to to re- as I said before, I think to realize that. Um, you're not committing to the same when you're married. You're making a commitment to difference, uh, to the possibility of change and the fact that change will happen. Uh, and if you don't know that and you don't realize that, then then you might want to think twice. But the other thing um, 
that I, I do say and that I hope I manifest in the book in lots of ways is that I think a really good marriage is a comedy and uh, uh, it has a wonderful sense of humor to it. Mm. Well, thank you so much, uh, Deborah, for taking the time you know, to join us on this episode of the Yale University Press podcast and for sharing with our listeners a little bit about On Marriage. Thank you so much for having me. This has really been a fascinating discussion of On Marriage, and I encourage our listeners to pick up a copy if they're interested in this account. On Marriage by Deborah Baum is now available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for listening. Please visit us online at YaleBooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.